Amen. Good to see everybody again, and um, I hope that you've had a good week this past week. Some Sunday, I warn you, some Sunday, I am going to get on those drums, and I am going to throw down. Um, and yes, yes, you're clapping now. You might not be clapping then, uh, but uh, I am very inspired by the singing today, so thank you to the worship team for that. I also wanted to thank Roland. I'm in a thanking mood today. So thank you, Roland, for that tremendous, tremendous communion message, which ties actually right into my message, which is a Holy Spirit moment, uh, obviously. But I had an aha moment as Roland was sharing about aha moments. And that is, aha, wow, Roland can give a communion message in normal time. That's, uh, that, that's, so amazing, and and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that was a great message. And I I love dreams myself. I I actually dream in Technicolor, and they're very very vivid. And um, the 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 more I'm thinking about things and working on things, the more I dream, and it all fits in and works in together. So I I really thank God for the dreams that He gives me, and I I love at times to um. I come across people in my dreams uh, and share memories with them and re relive memories uh, in my dreams. And I do feel like it's, it's part of God working on us and God giving us a little kiss of grace every now and then. And I think the Holy Spirit is involved in those things as well. Memories, talking about memories, talking about remember, you know, it is 9-11. And I want to spend the first part of the, the sermon today just thinking about 9-11 uh, and then making a transition to think about uh, adding to our own community of faith. That'll be the basic um, message today is uh, bringing our faith into the community of faith. But it's based on an idea that I think of when I think of 9-11. Um, I'm sure if you're old enough to remember 9-11, you know where you were when you heard about the planes hitting the World Trade Center. Uh, it's that kind of event that just kind of gets stuck in your memory. I happen to be in North Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina, because I was uh, going to teach and, and speak there uh, over a few days. And uh, I was actually, that morning, I was on a golf course in Raleigh, North Carolina, with a few, a few brothers and, and close friends, uh, Rick Overturf, Mitch Mitchell, uh, others. And we were just enjoying the morning together. And we hadn't finished the, the front nine. And I remember uh, one of the brothers got a call from uh, one of their, got a call from his wife. And, he, and she said, um, just wanted you to know that a, a plane just hit the World Trade Center, uh, one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And we tried to get more information from her because we were out there in the middle of the golf course. And she said, well, I don't really know any more than that. Um, but then she called back not too much later, and she said, a second plane has hit the second tower of the World Trade Center. And at that point, we just folded up all, the, all of our clubs, and we just walked into the clubhouse to watch what was happening on the news. And, um, and the, the, that, that paused our day, I'm sure, as it paused all of you, uh, whatever day you were having that day. It paused your day as well. And we stood there, um, dumbfounded and shocked, as we looked at the video replay of the planes hitting the World Trade Center. And as we were, 
standing there watching, uh, we saw the first tower collapse. And then we kept watching and we saw the second tower collapse. And um, it, was, uh, it was just a devastating moment uh, for all of us, but especially me being from the New York area. Uh, it was very devastating. And I'd been in the World Trade Centers. I'd admired them up close and from a distance. And uh, to see them fall like that um, was, um, uh, it, it was just, uh, it was a moment in time that I'll never forget. Um, and they, they quickly said all air traffic has been um, ceased. And so I got on the phone and I got, I, I knew I had to drive back now. And I got actually the last rental car at a rental car place. That night, there was a congregational devotional um, that was planned and I was to lead that congregational devotional. And uh, we, we had it and we spent a lot of time in prayer but I also talked about um, the need for love um, because even having lived in the Middle East, I was already hearing uh, so much about uh, retaliation and that sort of thing. And uh, I know that Jesus doesn't expect that of his people. And so I talked about love and, and Jesus is so bold and so radical that he even says, love your enemies. And I remember a sister walking up after the devotional and she was in tears. And she said, I was so nervous to come tonight because I didn't know how I, how I would be received here. I've been a member here for a long, long time. And most people don't know, but I'm, I'm Arab. I'm an Arab Christian. And she said, and what you said was exactly what I needed to hear. And I'll never forget her response. And it was a response that came really from my having lived in the Middle East and understanding that um, so many people that, that live there aren't a part of a violent and culture. That's not who they are as people. They're just simply trying to live their lives. Um, and there is no room for retaliation, being a Christian and following Jesus. I drove home the next morning, and I can remember driving up the New Jersey Turnpike, heading towards Rockland County. We lived in Rockland. And I can remember uh, looking into the distance to the, to the east and seeing the smoke billowing up from ground zero. And I remember the closer I got, the larger the smoke got and the more dense the smoke got. And I can remember, you know, there are parts on the turnpike where you can just basically look over and see lower Manhattan. And I could see ground zero. And I could see um, the, the smoke billowing up from the site there. And it was a horrible site. And again, it's something that I will always remember. I will never forget. A few days after the towers collapsed, a friend of, uh, of mine knew a, an owner of a restaurant whose restaurant was in um, Lower Manhattan, and he had to close, as all the restaurants and everything did in Lower Manhattan. But he opened up his restaurant to cook meals for everyone that was a first responder, that was a firefighter, that was um, a volunteer. And um, he uh, 
he needed volunteers to come in and do that because he could no longer pay workers to come in and do it. And so um, I talked to my friend and I said, oh, that I would love to come in. Well, you basically you work through the night and you cook and you do your best to prepare uh, a hot lunch and a hot breakfast for <clears throat> the people that are on the site. And I, we stayed up through the night and I can remember, um, I can remember needing special clearance to get into Ground Zero. I can remember going um, to the restaurant and working hard, working really hard, uh, but not as hard as the people that were there were working in the rescue efforts. And I can remember just outside the door, um, uh, you know, just a couple of blocks away, there being Ground Zero and just thinking as I was working about all the people that were working so hard to try to rescue others. The most memorable impression that I had, that I have of that time on um, that working there that close to ground zero is that we actually had tables set up and we uh, served the volunteers. And you have to realize volunteers came from all over the place, especially all over the United States. There was no air travel. They just drove through the night, through the day to get here, they brought supplies with them. Some brought trucks of supplies with them, uh, gear that could move huge stones and um, heavy metal, as well as bottles of water. Um, and so most of the people that, were, that we were feeding were, they, they actually weren't New Yorkers. They were from some other place that came and drove just to help with the rescue efforts. And I can remember as they sat down and we served them, and this was breakfast, we served them hot breakfast and then had prepared lunch for that same day. But as we were serving them <clears throat> breakfast, and it wasn't anything elaborate, it was just like scrambled eggs and buttered toast and bacon and that sort of thing. Um, but I can remember them um, looking up, st stopping their meal as I would walk by and ask if you needed anything else. <clears throat> they would look up. They didn't glance sideways, they didn't keep on eating, but they would look up and look in my eye and they would say, thank you for this. This means so much. And I, I thought, I didn't do a thing. All I did was scramble some eggs. You guys are out there moving concrete and metal to try to find people and see if they're still living. Um, and I would just say to them, that's very nice, but thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. And they would usually ask me my name and we would have a short conversation. I would ask them from where they were from and they were from everywhere. They were from North Dakota. They were from Georgia. They were from Arizona. They just came from everywhere to try to help out. And as the morning concluded, breakfast concluded, my friend and I, we put on some hard hats and we actually went down to, to the site. We went to ground zero and we walked around a little bit and we viewed the destruction. And it's nothing like I've ever seen before or I've ever seen since. It was just a smoldering landscape of debris and rubble. And the workers looked like ants trying to move these giant pieces of concrete and giant pieces of warped metal. And I think back on that night 
And when I was first given the opportunity to go there and serve, my response was immediate. It was yes, yes, I'll help. And why? Because so many other people had contributed. So many other people were risking their lives actually to be there to try to rescue people. And so for me, it was a no brainer. I'm going to volunteer. Everyone is volunteering. I'm going to volunteer. And I wanna bring something when I come. I wanna work hard and I want to, when I have an opportunity to encourage the people, I want to encourage them and I wanna be there in the moment for them. And as I think about who we are as a people of God, that's not much different than what everyday discipleship ought to be. That we just show up. We show up and we're there and we're part of the community and we give whatever we can give. And if, if we feel like, well, I don't know what my gift is, well, all of us can give the gift of love and all of us can encourage other people. And there's a story in, in Mark chapter two that I want to read and just focus on for a few minutes that ties into this because volunteers are found all over the Bible. Some people are called to action. I think of people like Moses and Deborah and Huldah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. They all received a call or they all were asked to do something specific. Paul was that way. But some people responded without there being a need for a call. They just saw the need and they responded. I think about Nehemiah, for example. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah over the next couple of months. And Nehemiah was a person who didn't really, he just heard about what was happening back in his homeland. And he thought, you know what? I have to do something. Ezra heard that and understood that the temple had been destroyed while people lived in paneled houses. And so he responded. And you have people like that. I think about the Good Samaritan who was just there. Um, you know, whether it's a, a story or something that really happened, we know that stories like that happen all the time. Saw the need and responded when other people didn't respond. And so in the Bible, there are all these examples of people that volunteer, uh, not because they're called, not because they're chosen, not because they're selected, but because they see the need and respond. And I feel like that as God's people, that's how we ought to be. That's how Jesus was. Jesus was the person, yes, he was called. Of course, he was called by God. But he was also driven by the needs of people around him. And he saw those needs and he responded. And he responded with love and he responded with grace and he responded by helping them to know more about God. And so when I get to Mark chapter two, and I'm ready to read the scripture now, you guys with me? Okay. Um, in Mark chapter two, beginning in verse one, it says, Jesus entered again into Capernaum. Capernaum was basically Jesus' adopted hometown in, in Galilee when he was doing his northern ministry. Uh, it's also known as Capernaum in the Hebrew, and it means probably house of consolation or house of comfort. And it says, and the people of the town reported that he was back home. And then it says, so many gathered at the house and it could, so that it could not hold all of them, 
I'm reading from my own translation. If it sounds different, that's why. There was not even enough room outside the door. Now, um, Jesus comes back, and he's probably most, well, I should say many scholars believe that he was in the house of, of Peter at this point. And archaeologists feel like they've discovered the house of Peter. I've actually been there, and I've seen it. Whether it's the house of Peter or not, there is a synagogue just a stone's throw away that was from the first century, and that's the definite synagogue where Jesus healed the demoniac there. And so there's places when you go into Capernaum that you know this is where Jesus walked, which is a really great thing. And then it says, Jesus spoke God's word to them. Notice the people gathered, and I would imagine they've heard about Jesus's miracles. We see that next. I would imagine a number of them want to be healed, but what does Jesus do? He speaks the word of God to them. Doesn't mean he doesn't heal. He did heal. He healed on many, many occasions, even here. But he also spoke the word of God. Jesus made sure that people understood God's will and God's word. Now, this is the story I want us to focus on, the part of the story I want us to focus on. It's in verse 3. Four people approached the house carrying a paralytic. They were not able to bring the man to Jesus because of the crowd. So they began to dig through the roof. Their roofs weren't like most of our roofs in which there's some uh, pitch to the roof and it's usually with shingles or um, some type of um, rock or, or something. Um, their roofs were flat and they tended to be mud roofs and they tended to need to be repaired uh, after the spring rains, the spring rains would come and wash through and they would take the mud and they would repair them again. And they used them as an extra room and they used them as a place to dry their clothes and to uh, dry their fruit and uh, to prepare for the next winter in which they wouldn't be able to have so much. And so it's a working roof. Um, we don't know what time of year it was, but they could, they could dig through it because it's made basically of, um, of dirt. And, and beams, wooden beams. And so they began to dig through the roof. And I always, as I picture this story, I wonder what Jesus and the people in probably Peter's house were thinking as they started noticing the roof beginning to leak some dirt. You know, first you see a little bit of dust, and you realize there's somebody up there doing something. And then uh, the dust turns to grains of dirt, then it turns to a lot of dirt. And then you see somebody's head poking through a hole. Um, and looking down, but they make it big enough so that um, they, they just dig through the roof and get the person to Jesus. And then in verse five, and I want us to focus on this particular verse, Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Notice in verse five, it says, Jesus saw their faith, not his faith, not the faith of the paralytic, but Jesus saw the faith of all five of them, the four friends and the paralytic. And it was their faith that led Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic. And then the paralytic is healed. But their faith, the faith of the friends, the faith of all of them together built a faithful community that Jesus responded to. And that's really the point of my story today. We're talking about volunteers. We're talking about adding to the community. We're talking about faith. And what do you bring to the community? One thing that all of us can bring is our faith. 
our faith in Jesus and our faith in God. Um, just the, the willingness of the men, let me just make a few points here. The willingness of the men to dig through the roof implies a few things. And you might think of more things. <clears throat> One, you see the friend's concern for the paralytic. They had concern and they had compassion. Their effort shows their devotion to help th this person. These were good friends. Number two, they went out of their way to get to Jesus. This shows their determination. You know, they went through the crowds. They went around the crowds. They climbed up to the roof, and that probably wouldn't have been hard. There's a staircase, most likely, that led up there. But then they dug through the roof. But they were determined, and they were determined to get their friend to Jesus. You know, I, I personally, I don't like crowds. I don't know how about you. I am not a person that likes to be around crowds. Um, and I definitely don't like pushing through crowds. That's just not my thing. However, if there are other people with me and they embolden me, I'll do it. And that's part of the thing about faith. If you have people around you that have faith, they give you more faith. And they embolden your faith. And they embolden your zeal. And they embolden your enthusiasm. Which is why it's important to have these type of friends around us. A good circle of friends like this is really helpful. But also, if I have a purpose, then I'll push through. And these people had a purpose. They knew they needed to get this person to Jesus. And it was their, their purpose and their conviction that led them to push through and gave them this determination. Also, number three, we see their perseverance. They were not deterred by the crowd, by the roof, by anything. They dug through the roof of a house to get to Jesus. What type of perseverance do we have? But mostly, and this is number four, mostly because Jesus points this out, we see their faith. The other things we infer from the scripture. This one, we don't have to infer. It's just right there on the page. They, Jesus saw their faith, and therefore he said to their friend, your sins are forgiven and ultimately healed this person. Now, we don't know anything about these, these four people, really, or the paralytic, other than what's written here. We don't know their names. We don't know their ages. We don't know their gender. Probably assume that they're men, but we shouldn't assume that because they might have been women. We don't know their size. We don't know their occupation. They're totally anonymous in the story, except for the fact that we know that they believed that Jesus could heal their friend and their faith and their action led to their friend being forgiven and thus being healed. So I have some questions for all of us. Do we provide this type of friendship for people around us? Do we provide this type of friendship for our community? Also, do we have at least four close friends that would do this for us and that would encourage our faith and encourage our zeal and encourage our determination. This ultimately, even though it's talking about a small group of people, it ultimately is a story about community. It's about caring for each other. It's about being in each other's lives. 
It's about having faith that motivates other people to have faith. It's about the faith of friends that would take their paralytic friend, their paralyzed friend, so that he would be forgiven and healed. What did they get out of it? They got the fact that their friend is now restored. And that's a great thing because that's community. And that is having faith in community. Simon Chan, who wrote a book called Spiritual Theology. Now, I don't recommend you read that book, Spiritual Theology. It is dense. It is thick. It is difficult to read. It has words that you will need to look up. Uh, it, it, but I, have, I assign it to my master's um, seminar in um, the theology of spirituality. So they have to read it. But, I, but it has some good points in it. That's why I have them read it. It challenges your thinking. But he writes this, and I, I like this statement quite a bit. The purpose of Christian formation, so we've talked a good bit about spiritual formation over the summer. The purpose of Christian formation is not developing a better self-image, achieving self-fulfillment, or finding self-affirmation. Nor is it the development of individualistic qualities that make singularly outstanding saints. Now, I wish I could, I should have posted that because that is quite the quote. Rather, it is developing certain qualities that enable us to live responsibly within the community that we have been baptized into. What he's saying there is spiritual formation, you will ultimately achieve some individual changes in quality of life, but that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is for community. He says the purpose of Christian formation, and I had an ellipsis here, is developing certain qualities that enable us to live responsibly within the community that we have been baptized into. The whole point of us working over the summer to develop our spiritual lives is for community. It's for each other. It's not just for ourselves. And that's, that's, I think that is seen even in the story, that it wasn't about the friends just being friends, just to be friends or to work on individually, individually on their spiritual formation. They were there in community to add faith to the community for the person so that Jesus would be present with all of them and notice all of them. We have opportunities to do this. You know, in two Sundays, on September 25th, we have an event that's going to focus on community and building unity within our community. It's entitled Connecting Our Community. And we'll have a meal together, and we'll share conversations with each other. And I just want to say to all of us, please come. Please be a part of this. Let's share some food. Let's talk. Let's, um, as I mentioned earlier, sign up. Sign up to bring something. But as you come, bring your faith. Bring your faith so that we can be in community with each other. A few more things, and then I'll close out. Does Jesus notice our faith? That's what Jesus does. He notices faith. In this story, Jesus noticed the faith of the five people? Does Jesus notice our faith? Do we add faith to the community? 
These four friends added faith to their community. Do we bless other people in our community because of our faith? Are we committed to our community? I mean, really committed, determined, like these four people were to get their friend to Jesus. How determined are we? How committed are we? I mean, a good question to answer is, do we show up? Do we show up to be in community with each other? How do we use our gifts to benefit the community? These are all questions that I just want us to think about, look at, um, ponder on these questions. Do we see sin as only an individual matter? Or do we understand that our sin impacts the whole community? Simon Chan notes in this dense book um, that he wrote um, that we don't just sin as individuals. Whenever we sin, it impacts the whole community. And in a sense, we sin against the community. He also notes that the only person who commits individual sin is the non-Christian or the heretic, because they have no community. But all of us that are Christian and we wear the name of Christ, when we sin, it's part of a community thing. Sin hurts the community. Therefore, as we live in community, we need to look for ways to bring each other to Jesus so that Jesus can say, your sins are forgiven. And that's part of living in community is that we bring each other to Jesus so that he continually um, cleanses us of sins. On the other hand, faith promotes community. Faith encourages community. The faith of these four people that, that took the paralytic to Jesus, Jesus saw their faith and said, your sins are forgiven. Do we have that type of faith in community? Do we add to the faith of the community? Are we just as committed to adding faith to the community now as the day when we were baptized? Does Jesus see faith in us and faith in our circle of friends? So, in conclusion, let's decide today. Let's decide that we will add faith to our community. Let's decide that we will strengthen the faith of our circle of friends. And let's decide that Jesus will see our faith and other people will be forgiven and healed because of our faith in Jesus. Amen.